0: It's a good job. I don't have a technical job, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Thank God.
2: (laughs) Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman.
1: I'm Shao Kazal.
2: And I'm Rob Kernahan. In this week, we're going to be talking about leadership in different real states, a critical but under discussed element of digital transformation. Joining us this week is Professor Dave Snowden, director and founder of the Kenefin Centre, and author of the Kenefin Framework, Flexius Curves, and Estuarine Mapping. And we'll see in today's show how you apply them to help decision making in modern businesses. Welcome, Dave. Amazing to see you. Do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work of the Kinefin Centre?
3: Yeah, real pleasure to be with you. The Kinefin Centre exists to apply natural science as a constraint on social systems. So we develop methods, we develop tools, and we work with an extensive network of independent consultants to make those tools practical and sensible for companies across the world.
2: So my first encounter with the Kinefin framework was at a leadership team meeting in BP. And at the time I was running the cloud transformation program there. And we were at a point in the program where it was getting really sticky, like, like really difficult. We had a lot of reaction going on in the in the business units of BP. The central cloud transformation team were building a platform and we were we had demands in terms of our backlog on that platform from what we needed to do for the central migration cadence but also all of the business units that had different perspectives on how we wanted to use the cloud were all putting in their own requests you know, and had very specific views on how they wanted the platform to evolve. And we were sitting as a leadership of the program trying to work our way through a problem of not enough time, not enough budget, and actually right on the edge anyway of what was possible at that time. This was probably seven or eight years ago, so the cloud has matured. Hugely since that period, and we were we were very much kind of working our way through a huge amount of ambiguity. There was very little pattern that you could uh, that you could leverage. And at the time, by coincidence, in that session, I had a coach of mine at the time, uh, a, a chap called Alistair Kidd. And as this meeting was getting increasingly fractious, I turned to Alistair and said, yeah, "Alistair, is there anything any advice you've got? Because we sort of at a complete log jam here." And he said i think you're looking for a complicated solution to a complex problem and i'm like hmm, that's a that's an interesting comment do you want to do you want to dig into that a little bit so that just that little phrase was something that then created a breakthrough in that program we changed quite a bit about how we made assessments on uh what to do and when we shortened all of our decision making sort of time periods i think we went down to like weekly standups as a leadership team from that perspective, because it was more about dealing with things in the moment and, and testing what the business units really needed versus us trying to hit a plan that was actually 12 months out and 12 months in this program felt like an eternity. Maybe just by way of getting into the Knefin framework, Dave, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, is that the sort of scenario you had in your head or is, does that sound like a really strange use of it it's, to you? It's not uncommon. Um, and you should really write
3: that up as a case for the Little Green Book, because we could do with more like that. Oh, I will definitely do that. I think um, I mean I wasn't the first to invent the distinction between complicated and complex. I mean, you can see that. Well, Barbara got it from me. Stacy got it from wherever. I got it from Killias and so on. Right. I think I was the first to say there is nothing wrong with making complex complicated. Right. (laughs) I, I started to argue heavily for dynamics or movement between domains, and I think that was important. And I think I was the first to argue it was a phase shift and it was about reality. It's interesting that came out in the lecture I gave at Hull University last night. Right. is most people in the systems school think systems are based on how people perceive them. Hmm. Whereas I'm coming from a materialist perspective, which says, well, systems are. Human perception is a layer on top of that, as is knowledge. But kind of like reality exists, guys, live with it, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to deal with real-world constraints.
3: That's it. And I think St- Stacy's framework is all about perception. So I think that was a, that was a key distinction. But no, I, I think we found this also with a new framework, the Astro mapping. By focusing people on smaller things or focusing people on divisions between types of things, you can radically reduce consciousness Conflict and it's not this sort of new age fluffy bunny. We should all everybody's views are equally varied, and we should all be nice to each other. Nonsense. It basically says, look, you know, if you start with the ontology, the nature of the system, then actually life becomes a lot easier. If you actually start with how you perceive or what you want, you're always going to get conflict.
2: Right. And and maybe for people who have not yet come across the framework, can you just give us a, a sixty thousand foot view? Yeah. It's
3: um, it's basically that uh, it. it it takes three of the five states of nature, if you go back to physics, yeah? And it talks about ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems for which use the metaphor of solid, liquid, and gas. Um, I may get superconductors in it. I'm thinking about that at the moment. But it basically, and it basically says, look, there are phase shifts between these things. So it's like latent heat. If you heat water up to 100 degrees, hmm. it doesn't become steam till you put more heat in. So the boundaries between those, domains are actually phase shift boundaries. So if you relax the constraints and make something complex, you release energy. If you want to make something ordered, it takes a lot of energy because you put more structure into the system. And then the link between order and chaos, which is unique to Kinevin, basically says an excessive focus on order will create the conditions for catastrophic failure of the system. So that's a catastrophic shift. You've got back to rene catastrophe theory. And then we add two more layers to Kinevins. Sorry, the, the central domain, which everybody forgets, and I just did, which I shouldn't have done, which is critical, is like the triple point. If I go back to solid, liquid, and gas, it's the point where it's equiprobable, yeah, whether something it's a balance of temperature and pressure, where it's equiprobable, whether something will become solid, liquid, or gas. And Kinevin that's the central apparetic domain. And apparatic means an unanswerable question. Hmm. Hmm. You have to think about things in a different way. You can't just go with the flow. And then that next level on kinevin divides order into complicated and clear, but that's an arbitrary boundary. It's not a phase shift boundary. And then the third level where it gets really sophisticated is where we draw the liminal line, which creates four liminal zones Yeah, on, on top of that.
0: Is there a bit in there, you know, it's that human, we speak a lot on the show about like the human operating system, which is we're hardwired to behave in particular ways. It's very difficult to rewire all of that. In chaotic systems and you get that chaos, people naturally seek order, but it's a huge amount of energy to get it back to an ordered state, which actually then creates that failure that feels or I've seen it a lot where it creates those failure scenarios in quite a common way. Is that a, a you know, a natural way that we try and behave to try and get control and then it, 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 it cascades out? Or is it something else when you say about catastrophic failure?
3: Let me, let me push back on one thing. We're not hardwired to do anything. We're wet. We're not hardware. Okay. So the, 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 the computer model of human decision-making, which goes back to Shannon and converting signal theory into information communication theory, which underpins most of systems thinking, is deeply problematic in terms of understanding how people make decisions, which is not just cognitive, it's social, it's body, etc. So I'll just push back on that, because I always do, just to make a point. Um, I think the, the interesting thing is, actually, chaos takes more energy than complex in human systems. Human systems don't like, as you say, chaos. So actually... If you leave a chaotic system alone, somebody will impose an order pretty damn fast.
2: Mm, Yeah.
3: Um, And that generally is a shift to complex. So it's not, to try and force a rigid order again, yeah, that takes a huge amount of energy. So that's climbing back up the cliff. But what actually happens is things become complex very fast as people start to make connections, start to create structure.
2: I thought the move of the world into the pandemic was an amazing sort of giant macro simulation of that to a certain extent. It
3: was very temporarily chaotic. But again, I mean, that's something we say in the You Field Guide, which was based on Kinevit, is, I mean, as you get to higher and higher levels of leadership, you make fewer and fewer decisions and meet angrier and angrier customers. That's the price <laughs> of promotion, right? <laughs> um, the only time you get to make decisions is in a crisis. And you don't make decisions to resolve problems, or at least you shouldn't try, you need to make decisions to keep options open so that other people can make more effective decisions at a micro level. Mm. So if you look at what happened in COVID, New Zealand, the prime minister, broke her own law to impose lockdown. Mm. But that gave them far more options than, say, Sweden and the UK, who waited to the last possible minute, by which time their options were severely limited and people died in consequence. So I think there are, and again, that's his understanding. I think the key thing in is is to realize that order and complex and natural states, chaos is only
2: ever a temporary state. Hmm. To apply Kenevin then to to something we talk about a lot on the show, of course, which is digital transformation. Organizations during a digital transformation, in my mind, there is a number of things going on in that. It's not a simple tech swap out. So when you look at the tech layer, it's a very profound shift. So it's moving from sort of client-server era into a whole wholly different era of cloud, and that's as profound as swappers so mainframe into client server. So it's like a, a third major era of, of, of compute and architectures happening. And then around that, there is, a, a, a again, an equally profound change in ways of working, methodologies, and m- most importantly, leadership style in terms of how you move into a, a much more f- fast-moving, small a, agile, responsive organization from you know perhaps a, a more operating and trying to keep the lights on sort of approach that that most third generation IT had got to. So I wonder in your mind how you frame something like digital transformation and do you see it from a Keneving of point of view as, as a fundamental leadership shift from the world of the complicated to the world of the complex?
3: I, th- I think there's a generic problem with anybody who talks about transformation.
2: Hmm. We should not said it now.
3: Uh, because kind of like you get into this idea that we're going to do this magic thing and then everything will be different. Mm. And the danger with that is we've been doing this constantly since the 1980s. And we haven't done a both and solution. We've done an either or solution. So it's kind of like, you know, we we need everything needs to be business process re-engineered. Okay, cool. Works in manufacturing, totally crap in service. And instead of saying, well, we, it, it's not sufficient, people then went Six Sigma, which is just BPR on speed, and tried to make it work harder. Mm. Then you had learning organization, Blue Ocean Strategy, and digitization and agile are the two current buzzwords. And executives are jumping into them because they feel they have to for their shareholders. Hardly any of them understand what it means. Right, right. And none of them are addressing the issues about long-term resilience, like, okay, you need to go into the cloud, you need to digitize. Because you need to think about resilience if the cloud is taken down because we're moving into an area of a different type of warfare, and you may not have that if you put all your eggs in one basket and people are not thinking about resilience within the system. It's just doing everything. Mm. The other thing is, and this comes back to what we said a few minutes ago, people are still working off a computer model of human decision making and not realizing that digital and analog are different, Right. And there's a whole body of things that human beings make decisions on much better than di- and digitalization can prevent human beings making the right decisions rather than enabling it. So part of the problem is we're trying to do too much too quickly based on another pendulum swim, another idealized definite of the future. Now, that actually is what s mapping is about. It's not mm. what Kinevin is about. Kinevin is about once you have to make a decision, what type of decision is it? And would you be better in shifting the context before you make a decision, which is a dynamic move, Yeah, So that's what Kinevian is about. And so in digitization, kind of like you start off, you know, this is a complex problem. So the last thing you want to do is take a recipe from a big six consultancy. You want to identify all coherent hypotheses, eliminate the incoherent, start to run safe to fail experiments, see what works, see what doesn't work, run those in parallel. Yeah, And then start to stabilize the things which prove they will work in your context. And this is actually true agility, which is actually taking a process of evolutionary stabilization rather than the engineering approach, which we're currently doing, is assuming every time we do a transformation, we've got a greenfield site. Mm. You haven't. You're on a brownfield site, to use the architectural metaphor and i think you're going to see another trend once digitization doesn't deliver the benefits that everybody says it will deliver and once the cloud is taken down in you know cyber attacks at some stage and people have got nothing to fall back on all of a sudden there'll be another fad
2: mm. just say a few more about your current Esturine thinking and and how does that help with trying to deal with that
3: in Estuarine mapping there are three major frameworks in Kinevin and now we now we've got the third We're kind of like there i think in terms of corporate strategy mm. So what Estrine mapping does, it identifies the only things you can understand in a complex adaptive system, which are modulators, and it splits those into constraints and constructors. Yeah, so a constraint can contain or it can connect. Mm -hmm. And that's actually quite an important distinction. A constructor is something in the system which enables transformation once something encounters it. So a machine is obviously a constructor, but also in humans, ritual is a constructor. Mm -hmm. So the thing doesn't constrain, but it constructs. So what we do is we identify those ideally using software over a two to three month period. So we can do it in real time, but we're doing a lot in workshops at the moment. It then gets mapped onto a grid which shows energy cost of change against Mm -hmm. time to change. So now we've got lots of these things on that. And then anything top right on that is called a counterfactual. It realistically isn't going to change. Then what people do on the clusters yeah, of constraints or constructors is they have three actions. One is stabilize it. We're comfortable with it there. The other is reduce or increase the energy costs or the time. And the third is this will be possible to change once something else happens first. So instead of a we are going to achieve this and this is a pathway, it's we're going to do 40 or 50 of these things and then see which are the easier pathways once we've done them. Right? Now, that is also a massive conflict resolution device, and it gives you something which is far more resilient and far more sustainable.
0: Just thinking about the way you map that and going back to your piece around people adopting digital cloud transformation, etc. In your view, what sort of timeframes do these operate on? So you talked about the 80s and going through the different phases. Where, where do you think will be or where do you predict we, a, a realisation will occur about the benefits aren't quite there or that it didn't achieve the expectation set when do you think that might occur from a horizon
3: if you go back the cycle has been anything between three and five years right and basically i I find it quite amazing that people still fall for this so every three to five years there's another major transformation program with the same consultants who sold you the first telling you that now they're into the second or the third or the fourth (laughs) or the fifth all right And, I mean, to my mind, this is perverted, right? And it's partly because the consultancies have all moved from apprentice models to manufacturing models. And the minute you have a manufacturing model of consultancy, you're into industrial-scale recipes and repetition rather than genuine advice. So I think that's one of the issues, right? But I think the other thing is we're we're going to go in a bigger phase shift at the moment. What COVID did is it triggered, I think it triggered the final break with systems thinking and its derivatives. Hmm. And I should hasten to add, you know, the popular end of systems thinking is damaged systems thinking a lot. <laughs> That's what's been popularized, all right? Is systems dynamics cybernetics, the hard end.
2: Just say a word for those who aren't familiar, Dave, like what is systems thinking and then return to the, uh, well, it gets, the so you, you get
3: systems, damage. you got three or four different groups. So you've got systems dynamics, which people are familiar with from Peter Senge, which is Forrester's work, which Senge hugely oversimplified, all right, um, which basically says you have entities with cause and effect relationships with feedback loops and you get these loop diagrams, yeah? Mm. Anywhere in from a complexity point of view basically says you just don't understand causality, but that's that side, all right? You then get cybernetics, which is Beer and others, which is now really focused on pattern language and, and Beer's VSM model. Yeah, so it assumes there are a certain number of patterns which can be discovered and we can choose the pattern we're going to apply. And um, again, my point of view that's completely the wrong level of granularity and again like all these things it assumes causality mm. you get soft systems with checkland which i derived a lot of my stuff from peter was a great guy but that's workshop based it doesn't scale but at least it handles abstractions
2: right
3: so you go, and all of this stuff is put together under the title systems thinking which we of like contrast with complexity science mm. Mm. Right, And that's important because complexity is a scientific background. Right, mm. Mm. But what, what we saw happen, what COVID did is it tricked one of these big phase shifts because what happened in the 80s is we went from scientific management to systems thinking. Right. That was a big right. switch. Mm. And everybody criticizes, actually, when they're, mostly when they complain about Taylorism, they're actually complaining about early-stage systems thinking. Um, Taylor was actually quite humane in the way he handled companies. Nobody's read Taylor before they condemn him. I think we're in another phase shift at the moment. I think this is what was called the age of complexity. What COVID did is it made people realize there was a world of unknown unknowables. Mm. Mm. And therefore, any framework based on causality or future prediction was limited in terms of the way it worked. So so two seconds. What we're now seeing is people have stopped asking us how we do something and they're asking us what we can do for them. And that's normally the switch when something moves into a different phase of the market
0: and i think that yeah there's sort of things got rewritten very quickly under covid to design the way you operate the way you think the way you structure yourselves to prepare for anything almost and the ability to respond there was some great heroic things that happened during covid that responded very quickly a very high amount of energy was required to deliver those and then we're trying to work out what the post covid structure and ways of working yeah. are and we see that a lot within organisations readjusting to the new reality
3: yeah, I, I actually, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic and pessimistic on that. I mean, we, we put a lot of work in the EU field guide into laying out what organizations should do, which is build their employees as a human sensor network, build informal networks, map knowledge at the right level of granularity for repurposing. And that's 101, all right? Mm-hmm. But most organizations are just moving into variations of cone of possibility, scenario planning, contingency planning. What they're not doing is they're not converting their organization into an ecosystem which can respond to uncertainty. They're still in the planning causality horizon, and that won't work. The next plague, and there's going to be at least one more plague in my lifetime, and I'm 70 next year, and the next one's likely to be bacterial, and we're not putting the stuff in place now to understand how to handle that.
2: Cheery thought, Dave. I've just I've just finished watching the uh, the Last of Us, the HBO show on uh, on, a, on a fungal infection. It's, it doesn't look very nice.
3: Yeah, and there's stuff hatching out in Siberia, which is really scary. All right. Um, so, bac- bacterial fungal infections actually have a much worse history than viral in human systems. Mm. I mean I haven't watched that yet. I decided there's a limit to how much depression I can take at the moment.
2: Um, it does have moments where you where you do think
3: why i doing this um, myself. The point is, we know how to create a resilient system. The trouble is you've still got managers, even though they recognise COVID created uncertainty. There's a thing called retrospective coherence in complexity. The danger is when you look backwards, you can see what you should have done and you assume you could have known that at the time. And the reality is there are too many things that you could have known, and that's the mistake people are making. Uh, They are making that fundamental error, and it's the error which is constantly made with royal commissions of inquiries, congressional committees. Retrospective coherence will kill humanity if we don't watch it.
2: Just going back to the three frameworks, just so we can get the full set, so to speak. So we've talked about Kinevan itself. We've talked about Estuarine mapping. The final framework is, is Flexius curves.
3: That's a combination of Moore's crossing the chasm and S curves. And my bit of originality on it that is to basically say the reason you get the chasm, i.e. after the early adopters, you get this drop in demand, mm. is because the old paradigm is dominant. So the old paradigm is dominant but running out of utility, so that creates a space for novelty. But it also prevents novelty dominating until it almost fails catastrophically. So that's Fletcher's Curves. Right. And that identifies key points to monitor for when you need to make changes. So that's now an overlay on s mapping. Because if the life cycle switches, change will be really easy. But until it switches, change is almost impossible.
2: And if you were advising a chief executive in the world that we're in today with the reality that we're living in, how would you advise, maybe just to, to bring today's conversation to a bit of a conclusion, how would you advise the combination use of the, of the three frameworks for them to go into this in a way that's kind of eyes wide open?
3: I think... I mean, s mapping, we can now do on a distributed basis over the whole organization, and we can make it real-time. And this is what in military is called combining grand strategy with tactics in a single framework. Mm. And that's actually really important in next-generation corporate strategy. Yeah? And the, the, once you've got the actions out, they get sorted into Kinevin of in order to make the most efficient decision based on which type of domain they're in. So that's fundamentally how it works. But the three big things, well, four big things, really. So one is you need to start mapping constraints and constructors on a continuous basis at a micro level across the whole organization because those give you early indications of change, right? And it it diverts you into something which can actually be managed as opposed to aspirational stuff. But then these three key things in the field guide, which is your employees need to be a human-sense network capable of giving you real-time feedback. You need to actually create informal networks so everybody in the organization is within three phone calls of everybody else based on a trusted working relationship. Hmm. And you need to map what you know at a very fine level of granularity so that you can repurpose it very quickly in a crisis because you do not have time to invent in a crisis. You have to repurpose things you're already capable of doing. So those are kind of like three fundamental principles, right? And it's laid out in the field guide. Those are the things you do.
2: Dark, what what have you been looking at this week?
1: So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech, and this week I want to focus on six tips for CEOs who are leading digital transformations. So a digital transformation is no longer a choice, but a fundamental strategy that must be implemented in every aspect of an organization. And therefore, many businesses realize that they must modernize their technology and their infrastructure to stay competitive. So, of course, all the digital efforts must work together. And beyond that, businesses also need to keep pace with changing business environments, particularly in a world where customer expectations are constantly evolving. So what are the most important things to consider for business leaders who start a digital transformation in their organization? First, have a clear strategy. Align your top team around a clear strategy that matches your industry. Close the technical gap in your leadership team. Have the right team with the right skills. So train your staff and also invest in talent acquisition. And also ask big questions such as, how do you see the world evolving? What do you think it could look like in five years? And how do we want the company to grow to meet those expected changes? You also need to know your current technical level. You need to increase your bandwidth and organizational skills with software outsourcing, And lastly, measure the return of investment because digital transformation is a long established process that will cost you effort, time, and money. And if you miss on that ROI evaluation, no success or failure can be recognized. So a question for you, Dave, what do you think of these recommendations and are there any important steps that are missing here?
3: There's only one I agree with, which is to understand where you are technically at the moment. Uh, the rest is straight out of a 1980s strategy textbook.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: yeah, with very little understanding of uncertainty. First of all, the last thing you should do in a complex system where you have high levels of uncertainty is have a clear vision of where you go and a clear plan to get there, because it will, means you will miss things that you need to spot.
2: Oh, I'm interested in that. So, in terms of them, because that is such a that is such a normal. I think every, every leader who's been trained in the last 20 or 30 years is trained to sort of, you know, envision the future.
3: That's one of the problems with systems thinking. It assumes there's causality. Now, the point about complexity is the future is unknowable until you engage with it. Right. So when you engage with it, it will change. So if you have a very clear plan, this is why scenario planning is actually quite dangerous under conditions of uncertainty, because it limits what you scan to what you thought you would see. So this is the complexity concept of starting journeys with a sense of direction but not having precise goals. And that means you've got to understand where the hell you are now before you think about where you would like to be. And you also need to understand that human, you know, carbon is not silicon. Mm. You know, the idea that digitization of everything is a good idea may actually create a disaster. To give you a very simple illustration on this, elite schools in the U.S. now are removing computers from their teaching so their kids will have an advantage in intelligence over people in state schools who are too information-centric. Wow. And you could lose your competitive advantage by digitizing everything
2: without thinking first. And so in that, in that scenario, how do you express and map direction without sort of setting the old North Star situation? You know, how do you communicate it? But
3: it's what, we, it's what we focus on. Astro mapping, by the way, comes from constructive theory and theoretical physics. Right. right. So what it basically says is you start off by identifying how do you I – mean, I'll put it in simple terms. You want to make the energy cost of virtue lower than the energy cost of sin. Hmm. All right? So if the energy cost of what you don't want is higher – then the energy cost of what you do want, that's good news, right? The trouble is most of the time transformation programs don't recognize reality and therefore they consume a huge amount of resource and they don't deliver. So sense of direction is done by saying, well, we'll reduce the energy costs of these. We'll see what happens and then we'll do this and then we'll do this and then we'll do this. Mm. It's what we call the Frozen 2 strategy. Mm. Yeah, that song in the middle of Frozen 2 where she says, all I can do is do the next right thing. Right In complexity, that's called the adjacent possible. Hmm. So what you do is you map where you are, you map where you can go next, and those are normally several places which may contradict each other, but you go to all of them just in case. Then you look again. And if you over-digitize stuff which actually human beings, human beings in small groups are better decision makers than computers or individual leaders. We evolved to make decisions in extended families and clans. Our work currently on distributed decision making is distributing significant power to combinations of three roles, not to individuals. Yeah, and that's that is digitally supported, but not digitally enacted.
2: I like that distinction, and I
3: think that, that difference between uh, that's a really important difference people aren't making.
2: It, to me, that brings to mind something we've talked about on the show a, a number of times now and I'm sure we will in the future too the use of generative ai and and, yeah. and how that's used as a tool and how you know you can burn yourself with it
3: i remember 20 years ago right I was sat on a i won't say where near washington and John Poindexter was on the stage with me, and so was Clapper and a few others. It was a heavyweight intelligence thing. And somebody said, what do you think about AI? All of us said nobody's paying attention to the training data sets, and we said it more or less simultaneously. Mm. And 20 years later, we've been vindicated. Right. Right? And the whole problem with, you know, large language processing, the whole problem with, you know, if you've read Scholastic Parrots by the ex-Google employee, she became an ex-employee the minute she wrote that paper. Right? Right? basically the training data sets are what matters, not the algorithms. Mm, mm. Now, all the open stuff is trained on what's available in text form online. Now, what can be written down is about 10% or less of what human beings know. So the danger with AI is not that it becomes more intelligent than us, but that we become as dumb as it. And that's actually what's happening at the moment.
0: There's a really interesting point you made there, which is an interesting security problem which is with AI attack vectors change and you attack Mm -hmm. the data sets the training sets and you affect that and then you let the system create the result the changed result that you're after
3: I've been involved in this for 20-30 years that's Uh, one of our favorite tricks in wargaming
0: yeah, and, and people don't see it, but actually it's dead because a lot of data is sourced mm-hmm. openly and it can be easily manipulated and people don't quite get that bit yet, yeah. which I think we'll wake up to it much faster now that AI is becoming much more well, accessible. Well, interesting, the
3: TikTok debates are starting to show that in Congress yesterday. I don't think they've been well handled, but they are starting to show that. And I think that that's my point about elite schools are realizing removing people from technology increases their judgment, Right. I mean, i would give my favourite illustration on this. When I went to school, every week we walked to the front of the class on a Friday. The whole Friday morning was devoted to this in each class. You walked to the front of the class, you were given a small record card, and it gave you a motion and a side you had to speak on. So the first one I ever got was, you support capital punishment. And my mother was leading the anti-capital punishment campaign for the Labour Party in Wales at the time, so that was a teacher being malicious. Tough moment. Well, no, because actually... The rhetorician trained us for that. We had to speak for seven minutes without preparation for something we disagreed with every week from 11 to 18.
2: That's now, that
3: was an absolutely outstanding training because it made you critical. It made you a generalist. It got you to understand audiences. And we don't do that with kids anymore. They spend far too much time on computer screens. We're activating the autism gene. They're information-centric rather than knowledge-centric. And, and if you're information-centric, you can be manipulated.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's what's happening. Well, it's the, it's, the, it's the feedback loops in the bubbles that the system gives you back the information mm-hmm. you want to consume, and then you're not doing the counterpoint, so you're not learning the, uh, the benefits of potentially the alternative. Yeah, we
3: had this. I was on a think tank in New Zealand once, and this one guy, um, he was really excited. They, they created an AI bot which was really helping mental health people in New South Wales, right? So it was you had a conversation with a bot. It reinforced good behavior. And I said, Well, what's gonna happen when this is used on the internet to actually cause mental breakdown in people? And the guy looked at me and said, Oh my god, would people do that? And I said, Well, yeah. I've just done a quick phone call to people I know in the intelligence community. It's already happening. Yeah. Right. And have you got no idea what you're doing here? I mean the guy went away and he got quietly drunk that night because I don't <laughs> think you knew it
0: was Well that's but that's the Google thing, isn't it? They created the algorithm and they had great intentions and they never thought it would become corrupted or used for other purposes. <laughs> When I was in MIT
3: Bookshop just before COVID, there was this really depressing book which was said correlation is causation. And there's a whole people of people in high tea who think if they just get enough data, their algorithms can do everything.
0: Oh.
2: Hmm. I want to return briefly to the point Shalkia raised because I, I just wanted to go through and get your takes uh, on the other ones. So just, to re- just as a re- bit of a reminder, it was have a clear strategy, ask big questions, know your current tech level, increase your bandwidth and organizational, and then measure the return on investment so you just want to, let's return to those for a second and just get your other just get your, your views on the others
3: i think um increasing organizational resilience is what i would say and that means you need to increase variety in the system now having clear goals actually contradicts that you need fuzzy goals mm. Mm. right? because then you're more
2: open to different Do you think it makes the organization more brittle when you've got
3: well you get diverse incentives and you also, you only hear, I mean, there's an old thing in anthropology. The minute you write your values down, you just lost them. Because everybody now knows how to write their business plan. All They'll right. use that key language, all right? right. And we had that in IBM. I worked on the on-demand strategy, which replaced E-everything. And I still remember sitting at a board meeting and somebody said, well, what do you think about the strategy? And I said, well, we should be using it to fire anybody who changes their slides in six months. Because they're obviously corporate politicians. If they really thought about the it. everybody around the room had done precisely that. Because they're all right. corporate survivors. Everybody, and, <laughs> yeah. And a third of them thought it was very amusing. Took me out for dinner, and the others got highly indignant. All right, <laughs> um, but it's yeah, this whole process, all right. You, the, the effective strategy, and if you, entrepreneurs do this all the time, yeah. They're constantly monitoring the present and they're exploiting weaknesses in the present to move things in and move forwards. Mm. And that's what big companies need to do. So you need to have a clear ability to map where you are and what you can do. And you need to have a clear ability to make exploratory forces and see what happens and then adjust your plans. Right. So you can do rigid planning for some things which have, say, a four or five year investment cycle on infrastructure. But I I did a project with somebody in the North Sea, who will remain nameless, all right, uh, where they actually hadn't discovered oil in about two or three years. And it was all terribly embarrassing. And I went in and did did some field ethnography, and I ended up removing the artificial intelligence, which was helping the geophysicists. Because if the AI said drill, they could drill, and it wasn't their fault if there wasn't oil. If they thought there was oil and the AI said there wasn't, it was too risky. So by removing the air within weeks, we'd found oil again. Hmm. Because actually, human beings were able to sense patterns that even the best IT couldn't. Right? And I think you know that's you, you need to be really, really careful of this stuff at the moment.
2: Right? You use an interesting word in there, which was sense. Yeah. Is that a distinction from sort of full logical understanding?
3: Yeah, it is. And I think this is the other problem. If if when computers came in, we got captivated by the idea of computers. I remember my daughter's A-level textbook in psychology, and I removed it from the course, started off by saying the assumption of psychology is that human brain is a limited capacity information processing device. (laughs) Actually, it isn't, right? right? Mm -hmm. But we now know that human consciousness is distributed. So if your brain dies, you die, but your body and your social interactions are part of what Andy Clark calls scaffolding, a distributed form of consciousness. We don't understand all of this yet, but we know that when human beings work, say, in extended family groups with high trust or high reconciliation, they have decision-making capability which isn't explained by the capabilities of the individual actors. It's in a, it, this is a quantum layering or emergent property, mm. and that's why I'm getting quite interested in superconductors because if you look at electrons, superconductors are impossible. When you clump electrons together in sufficient mass, all of a sudden you have superconductivity. And there's a strong metaphor for that in what we need. We need to be aware of the possibilities of emergent systems. And we need to design systems which will create emergence early so we can reinforce the stuff we want and disrupt the stuff we don't.
0: It's interesting thought about a completely unmeasured thing going on between humans. No, I just didn't say unmeasured. Um, sorry, that, that
3: was another point. If you have ROI, it assumes causality and nobility.
0: Right.
3: All right we focus on what are called vector measures. So vector measures measure direction and speed of travel for energy consumption. And so you can set KPIs based on that, and you can have clear measurement systems based on that concept of vectors and if you have vectors in complex you have outcomes in order
0: so you know there's something there we just haven't been able to explain what is there yet is that a better way to
3: yeah describe and it? therefore you need to be more open you need to be more exploratory yeah. and this is what we call theory informed practice natural science gives you solid theory to base practice on yeah Practice gives you feedback to know how to apply that theory. What you never do is you don't derive theory from practice, but that's what every social scientist does and all the management scientists do. And that you never capture enough data for that, and if the world is shifting, the last thing you want is theory based on past practice.
2: Hmm. Perfect point to end the conversation, I think. Okay, so we end every episode of the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. Could be a movie you're going to go and see at the weekend or maybe picking up the last of us or it could be uh, something that you're excited about in your professional life. So Dave, what are you excited about doing next?
3: I'm looking forward to getting back into the mountains in May. I've been away from them for too long. So Beautiful. What do you, what do you do? Are you, are you a walker? or Are you a climber? I, I So, I mean, last year I completed all the wainwrights in 40 days.
2: Oh, wow! Wow,
3: that was an average of eighteen miles a day, and about six or seven thousand. So I'm about to do them all again, but this time I'm doing forty-five days with different routes. I like a challenge. Yeah,
2: yeah that's amazing. It, it, so that's about to start up. Um, I mean, I would have thought doing it using Wainwright as well was heady as well as physical.
3: Well, you got the. I mean, the Wainwrights there. I'm a member of the Wainwright Society, so that's that's what you're focused on. I finished the Southwest Coastal Path last year as well, so I'm looking for another project like that. Um so that's fun. Um I'm back out in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore in July and August and I'm really enjoying travelling again. Yeah, beautiful. Because yeah. you meet different people and the big stuff, I mean Estro normally it takes me seven or eight years to create something on the theory side. Then mm-hmm. four or five years to get the practice right. So astro mapping did that in theory. Um but the practice in four months it's gone further than Cannevin did in eight years. Oh, wow. So I think we may have something big on our hands there, which we're focused on. And we're now actually about to start using it for personal psychological safety.
2: Oh, amazing.
3: And we're, the big, one of the other big things we're now working on is reporting of microaggressions yeah, within organizations. So those, those are things which are exciting.
2: Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. An incredibly thought-provoking conversation, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, pleasure. Always good to be with you.
1: So a huge thanks to our guest this week, Dave. Thank you so much for being on the show, to our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.